You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a paper from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. This online conference took place on four Fridays in March 2021 and was supported by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Fund, the UCD School of History, the UCD School of Gender Studies, UCD Centre for Gender Feminisms and Sexualities and the UCD College of Arts and Humanities Fund. This podcast is produced in association with History Hub. To listen to other papers and conference keynotes, go to historyhub.ie. The WHAI conference was organised by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD Gender Studies and Dr Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. This podcast features a paper from Gender and Political Activism which was a UCD Decade of Centenaries funded panel. The first paper in the panel was given by Susie Didigan of Queen's University Belfast. The paper was entitled It is to be assumed that members of Common Amman cannot be kept out of such a body. Republican Women and Prisoner Support Organisations, 1939-1945. The panel was chaired by Dr Mary McAuliffe from UCD. Uh, welcome to our first session of the second Friday and I'm delighted to be chairing it. So without any further ado, I will introduce our first speaker. Susie Didigan is a Department of Economy-funded PhD student at Queen's University Belfast, working on gender and political imprisonment in Britain and Ireland during the Second World War. She read history at Balliol College, Oxford, writing her dissertation on militancy in the Irish suffrage movement before completing her MPhil in modern Irish history at um, Trinity College Dublin. Um, writing her thesis on female political imprisonment in Dublin in the 1940s. She is uh, an executive committee of the, uh, on the executive committee of the WHAI, and today she will be talking about us, to us. Uh, her paper is entitled, It is to be assured that members of Cumminamon cannot be kept out of such a body, Republican Women and Prisoner Support Organisations, 1939 to 1945. Take it away, Susie. Thank you, Mary. And thanks to you and Fanula for organising the conference. I'm really excited for the other papers today. So by the Second World War or emergency, Cumminamon was an organisation in decline. Ward argues that by this time, Cumminamon existed only in name. And McCarthy suggests that after the Civil War, the organisation had drifted into obscurity, becoming, quote, a fading voice crying from an increasingly irrelevant political wilderness whilst Matthews has argued that the organisation had disappeared from the public consciousness. Now, Cumminamon's own membership also recognised this, with one member stating in 1944 that the man in the street has dubbed us as dead as doornails. Nonetheless, Cumminamon's uh, and its members remained active within prisoner support organisations, um, conducting welfare for prisoners and their dependents. And today, consideration of Cumminamon records in UCD, alongside Department of Justice records in the National Archives of Ireland and Home Affairs records in PRONI, have informed my discussion of Cumminamon's prisoner support work. Then I'll also discuss the activities of other prisoner welfare organisations in which Cumminamon members and unaffiliated Republican women were active. So the paper will demonstrate that existing networks of female activism were central to the operation of prisoner welfare organisations and that a gendered division of roles 
simultaneously limited women's status within republicanism and gave them agency and ownership of this area of activity. At this time, the IRA faced organisational disarray with its Dublin-based command disrupted by raids and arrests as both Fianna Fáil and the Northern Government suppressed its operation. It struggled to recruit and fundraise and Boyabel states that by 1940, its campaign in England had faltered, if not failed. As the numbers of internees and prisoners sentenced under emergency legislation increased in both states, Cumannamon's support efforts became more concerted. As well as supplying reading materials and parcels to the male internment camps, Cumannamon supported female prisoners. In 1941, its executive and district councils coordinated their efforts to ensure that the Republican women imprisoned in Mountjoy in Dublin would receive weekly parcels of food and other items. And a December 1942 resolution to quote, send a cake as usual to the girls in Mountjoy highlights how the regularity of the contact and the familiarity they had with the women imprisoned in Dublin. Practically, the Dublin-based committee could easily maintain routine contact with these women. However, efforts were also made to assist female prisoners in England and in Northern Ireland. Moira Laverty, a member of the Common Amorn executive in this period, suggested setting up a prisoners' comforts committee to look after prisoners in England and to provide them with basic but necessary items such as reading glasses. Cumannamon's members also arranged correspondence and they suggested non-members who could be asked to write regularly to women in Aylesbury, Holloway and Armagh jails. Uh, the names they suggested for this included Nancy O'Rahley, Helena Maloney, Madeleine French-Mullen and Hannah Shee Skeffington. So calling on women with long-established links to republicanism and experience in previous campaigns for prisoner welfare highlights the importance of these existing networks of female activism to the work of Republican women in the 40s. And it also indicates the struggle to recruit a new generation. Cumannamon also sent materials such as wool and tweed to Mountjoy for women to make gloves and other items to sell, which enabled imprisoned women to continue to contribute to Republican fundraising from inside the prison. And similar items were also sent to male internment camps for the same purpose. In 1941, Moira Twamley communicated with Aoife Taff, who at that time was interned in Mountjoy, to coordinate these arrangements. Both of these women had been in prison during the Civil War and their prior experiences clearly informed their efforts in, in the 40s. And this was true for many of Cumannamon's executive, including Sheila Humphreys, Laverty and Fiona Plunkett, as well as many rank and file members who and other unaffiliated supporters of welfare work who'd been imprisoned in the preceding decades. At Christmas in 1942, it was resolved to send cards to all female prisoners and to arrange parcels for women in Holloway and Armagh. Again, members' own experiences clearly furnished them with an understanding of the difficulty of being parted from loved ones. And this reinforces that although the committee was Dublin-centric, their efforts weren't focused solely on prisoners in independent Ireland. The Dublin committee also remained in regular contact with Belfast, although wartime legislation and travel regulations disrupted that. 
Common Amon also organised relief and assistance for ex-prisoners. Um, and this was particularly the case after no- November 1943, when all female prisoners had been released from Mount Joy and the numbers in male internment camps and prisons had also decreased. Um, in 1944, Amon discussed setting up an employment bureau for released prisoners and also an ex-prisoners relief committee. And once again, individual experience of imprisonment was furnished, furnished members with an understanding of what individuals needed on release from prison. There was an emphasis placed on maintaining links between ex-prisoners and a reunion of female prisoners was organised. This was partly an attempt to maintain involvement with Kumanamon, which was struggling to recruit. And unable to attend, Miriam James wrote to the reunion and noted that many members felt, quote, disheartened and disillusioned. And she called for greater recruitment efforts and national promotion. So this demonstrates Kumanamon's awareness of both its declining membership and its desire to retain its presence and renew its activity. Outside of Kumanamon's own activities, there were a number of other organisations in which its members were and had been active. And the involvement of Republican women in relief for prisoners' dependents was familiar. Many of the women that were active in this period had been involved with various organisations in the preceding decades. These included the Irish Volunteer Dependence Fund established in 1916. Um, Nick and McCool have argued that Cumnamon undertook the majority of its organisational and administrative tasks. And amongst those involved from its foundation was Sheila Humphreys, who continued to be instrumental in the organisation of relief for prisoners' dependents throughout the 1940s. Also founded in 1916 was the Irish National Aid Association, and eventually those two organisations merged and the National Aid continued to be operational. Throughout the War of Independence, the Irish Republican Prisoners' Dependence Fund operated, and when it split in 1922, Cumann and were instrumental in founding what was termed the Irregular Irish Republican Prisoners' Dependence Fund. Um, the Free State Government expressed its concerns about that fund and its legitimacy and suspected it to be a front for arms fundraising. Similar concerns were voiced by Fianna Fáil during the period of the emergency regarding the Green Cross Fund, which I'll come on to. Also, the Women Prisoners Defence League was founded during the Civil War, and although it continued to be operational throughout the 1930s, its membership was increasingly small, and it often worked in tandem with other committees. Cumann was also represented on the Political Prisoners Release Committee in the 1920s by Fiona Plunkett, who again was active within Cumann throughout the 1940s and was herself imprisoned in 1940. In Northern Ireland, the Irish Prisoners Aid Society was a fundraising group which was known to be an IRA front during the 1940s and a police raid on its meeting in March 1940 resulted in 23 arrests, including the arrests of two women, Agnes Ryan and Nancy Ward. So in order to continue to fundraise in Northern Ireland during the 1940s, a new organisation which could remain unconnected with illegal activity was needed. And the, in 1940, the Green Cross Fund was established to fundraise for prisoners' dependents in Northern Ireland. 
McConville notes its aim of remaining more plausibly distanced from the IRA and recruiting politically respectable members. And its trustees included Northern Irish nationalist MPs and it emphasised its, quote, purely charitable status. Whilst the president and trustees of the fund were male, women, both common among members and non-members, were vital to its operation. This is perhaps best evidenced by the choice of Kathleen Barry Malonius, its delegate to meet with Gerald Boland, the Minister of Justice, in October 1940. She presented Boland with a document which set out the aim of the fund to, quote, raise money for the relief of distress among dependents of Republican prisoners, end quote, through events like dances, concerts, plays, sports matches, etc. And she provided Boland with the names of key personnel, which included Brenda Brewer, the Republican activist and daughter of Carl Brewer, and Tomley. The document out also outlined that all the monies raised would be overseen by Mrs. Una Stack, another former prisoner and the widow of Austin Stack. In August, Stack, who was also acting as the Secretary of the National Aid in this period, had written to Boland, informing him that she'd be willing to swear an affidavit to ensure that all money raised for the fund would pass solely through her hands and be used solely for dependents. Boland still requested police reports on its personnel and he sought the commissioner's opinion on sanctioning the proposals. The Garda Commissioner Michael Cassane's response noted the prior involvement of personnel with Republican organisations. So we can see here uh, Brewer was marked as presumed well known, Tomley as executive of Common Amorn, Barry Maloney as the sister of Kevin Barry, and Sheila Heron as an active member of Common Amorn, brother IRA organiser. So this illustrates that women's Republican status was often judged in terms of their male relatives. Um, Kassane took a relatively lenient view and noted that the personnel, quote, seemed to be of the type that one would expect. There seems to be nothing especially objectionable if it's to be assumed that members of Common Amorn cannot be kept out of such a body. Clearly, Cumann Amon were expected to have significant involvement in such work. This was perceived as a gendered space in which women were the dominant activists. Kissane's main concerns about the fund were that the monies raised might be diverted to the IRA, functions might be used as cover for illegal meetings, and support for dependents might encourage recruitment to the IRA. However, he was confident that the organisation would agree to submit all its financial receipts to Boland, and the earlier assurances given by Stack confirmed that. Kassane also accepted that whilst functions might be attended by IRA sympathisers, he doubted, quote, if much real harm will be done. And his third concern that relief might encourage activity was shared by Stephen Roach, the Secretary General of the Department of Justice where Kassain stated, quote, the knowledge that one's dependents are being and will be looked after cannot fail but be some encouragement. He still overall took a view that the fund wouldn't have a significant impact on IRA activity, but Roach's response was much more hardline, and he felt that sanctioning the fund's activities would legitimise the IRA, and he also disapproved of the use of the term Republican prisoners, feeling that it implied the government was anti-Republican. He stated that hardship would end simply if the IRA's campaign ended, 
and he remained concerned that funds would be diverted to the IRA. He informed Barry Maloney that because of this, the fund wouldn't be permitted to advertise or publicise any of its activities, but it could act as an auxiliary to the national aid. The fund remained monitored until 1946, but as Kissane predicted, no evidence of direct involvement with the IRA emerged, although individual members and supporters maintained links. The fund avoided total suppression by Fianna Fáil and it gained public support, partially due to the backing of members of the Catholic Church. The approval of prominent clergymen, including the Archbishop of Armagh, the Bishop of Down and Connor and the Archbishop of Dublin, was emphasised to assert its charitable status as a fund which moderate Republicans could support and collections were organised at workplaces and church gates. This clerical support for prisoners and their dependents in Northern Ireland also featured prominently in the press and criticism of the Northern state was tolerated where criticism of internment under Fianna Fáil was not. The fund's activities in Dublin, though, were still subject to scrutiny. In December 1942, a flag day in support of Northern Irish prisoners' dependents was initially vetoed until Boland consulted the Garda Superintendent Carroll. And then it was decided that there was, quote, no objection provided the money collected is sent north and doesn't find its way into the coffers of the IRA here. The following year, an application to hold a similar flag day, but with the proceeds to go to supporting prisoners' dependents in error, was denied. And it was stated that, quote, Persons are interned because of their being considered a danger to public safety and peace. The disbursement of funds to the dependents of these persons must act as an inducement to them to persist. So this reinforces the distinction that was drawn between the cause of prisoners' dependence in Northern and Independent Ireland. In reality, though, funds continue to be raised for dependents in both parts of Ireland, and this was accepted to some extent. For example, when a query was raised by a government official in 1943 as to why money that was collected under the name of the national aid was being dispersed to prisoners' dependents, the data replied, quote, the funds are the same. So the committees were made up of many of the same members and organisations worked in tandem. Cumberland's minutes don't mention the Green Cross Fund by name in this period, but they do note their representatives attending, quote, meetings of a group formed to help the national aid. And throughout the period, Cumberland organised collections and hosted events in Dublin, um, including selling ballad sheets and collecting subscriptions for a, quote, dependence collection. Now, it's difficult to know whether this dependence collection was specifically for the Green Cross Fund or whether it was for prisoners' dependence in error, but it appears that Cumberland fundraised for both and the ambiguity of their records suggests that they didn't view the causes as distinct. Humphrey's records also detail a political prisoners committee and in September 1943, this committee released a circular which claimed that many dependents were, quote, starving because their breadwinners are in prison and that censorship hindered fundraising. The statement ended with a call to, quote, put an end to the persecution of Republicans. And this circular was signed by Maud Gon McBride, Una Stack, Hannah Shee Skeffington and Kathleen Lynn, amongst others. So their signatures, again, 
demonstrate the continued importance of existing networks of female activists, both within and outside Kumanamon, to this work for prisoners and their dependents in, in this period. McConville has noted that although women were prominent in prisoners' aid and family support throughout the revolutionary period, these activities didn't result in leadership roles within republicanism. And this remains true for the period of this paper. In a letter from June 1940 to the IRA command, Cumberland expressed their frustration at a lack of communication from the IRA regarding policy and strategy. And women's marginalisation was an ongoing and recurring issue within the IRA, which demonstrates its masculinist ethos in this period. However, women remain central to the organisation of welfare for prisoners and their dependents. Murphy has noted the prevalence of a, quote, gendered attitude that this caring role was one appropriate to women in his study of prisoner support groups after 1916. And it appears that this attitude persisted both amongst the IRA command and state officials. The Garda Commissioner's statement that it's to be assumed that members of Cumin and can't be kept out of such a body is a clear indication that relief work was regarded as an area where women were highly active. This is also a space in which women were highly effective and accepted as expert, as Barry Maloney's negotiations with Boland illustrate. References to women's male Republican relatives, especially those who'd been killed during the revolutionary period, provide an example of the specific and often emotive leverage that women were able to exert. It's clear that the multitude of organisations and committees operating at this time were largely interlinked with overlapping personnel, Whilst the Green Cross Fund was permitted to operate for the benefit of Northern Irish prisoners' dependents, it was closely monitored by the Irish state. And at the same time, members of its personnel remained active within Cumann Morn and on other committees providing for prisoners and their dependents without state approval. Personal experiences undoubtedly provided an understanding of how to assist those inside and outside the prison walls and with an increased motivation to do so. This past experience simultaneously provided Fianna Fáil with an acute awareness of the propaganda value of imprisonment, which shaped their suppression and censorship of these organisations. Work for prisoners and their dependents was perceived by many of those involved as charitable and not as direct support for the activities of the IRA. Existing networks of female Republican activism were instrumental in this. Women remained marginalised within Republicanism during this period, as they did within the wider political sphere. However, the work of Cumann and unaffiliated women in prisoner support organisations demonstrates one area in which women had agency to conduct effective and significant activism. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Besieged Bodies, Gendered Violence, Sexualities and Motherhood, the Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2020-2021. You can listen to podcasts of keynotes, and many other papers from the conference on historyhub.ie.